Oh, good morning. Welcome to Bethel Baptist. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and it's going to be found on page 2. And uh, as is our custom, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4 through verse 17. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, good morning. If you are a guest with us today, or if you have been away for uh, a couple of weeks, we're currently in a series in the book of Genesis, recalling In the Beginning, God. So Genesis was written by Moses, likely after the Exodus, after God led his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and before they entered the promised land in Canaan. In this book, Moses, being led by the Holy Spirit, he tells the story of beginnings, of God's creation of the universe, of God's creation of and dwelling with human beings, of mankind's sin against God, his maker, and, and I like the way the ESV Bible puts it here, of God's unfolding plan of redemption through his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. It's Genesis in a nutshell. This morning, we are studying Genesis 2, 4 to 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 2. This passage occurs just before sin and death enter the picture and it shows us what life was like for Adam in the Garden of Eden in paradise. 
So I'm wondering, what comes to your mind when you think of that word, paradise? Maybe you think of relaxation at the beach, spending the day kicked back under the sun with a good book in your hand. Maybe you think of a clean house after all the busyness and mess of the week, the grime is wiped away and order is restored in the home. Maybe you think of time with your family or friends being close to those you love and those who love you in return. Maybe you think of a long hike in the woods, breaking off from the wild nature of everyday life and spending some time in the actual wild. Maybe you think of a calm afternoon or evening at Longwood Gardens. I know that's a favorite here. Uh, spending time in the midst of beautiful vegetation. Whatever it is, we all have our ideas of paradise, of the truly idyllic, delightful state. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that we not only have our ideas of paradise, but we actually long for it. Well, Mike Cosper, in a book called The Stories We Tell, How TV and Movies Long For and Echo the Truth, it's a really good book, by the way, he offers a simple answer to that question. Why do we long for paradise? His answer is, because Eden was real. He says, quote, "...in what little we know about Eden, we can be certain that it was something glorious." and its glories haunt us still. Ever since the events of Genesis 3, which is when Adam and Eve sin against God and are cast out from the Lord's presence in Eden, he says, ever since then, we've hungered to return home. We're like second-generation exiles who never knew the world they lost, but long for it nonetheless. So our text this morning, Genesis 2, 4 to 17, it has in view this paradise that once was. Adam, the first man in the Garden of Eden. We need to reflect on this passage, I think, because of what it says about God, because, it, because of what it says about us and how we should live, and because we need to have our ideas of paradise shaped by and formed by what truly once existed, what we as believers actually enjoy in Jesus now and what we will know one day in full when Jesus returns and puts everything to rights. And so Genesis 2, 14 to 7, here God places Adam in the Garden of Eden and he gives him at least three things. We're going to work through each of these in turn. One, abundant provision. Two, a calling. And three, a command. Let's look first at point one, provision. So if you have your Bible, and again in the Pew Bible, this is page two, look with me at verse four of chapter two. Moses writes, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So the phrase, these are the generations, that's significant in the book of Genesis. It occurs 11 times, and it's used as a heading of sorts throughout the book to introduce specific people and their descendants. So these are the generations. It introduces Adam in chapter 5, Noah, 
the sons of Noah, Shem, one of Noah's sons, Terah, Abraham's dad, Ishmael, Abraham's son that he had with Hagar, his wife's servant, Isaac, Abraham's son that he had with his wife, Sarah, Esau, Isaac's son, who despised his birthright as the firstborn, and finally Jacob, Isaac's younger son, who received his father's blessing. Now, that's important to know because it helps us see how Genesis is laid out, how it's organized. Uh, it helps us follow the story better. When we know uh, we're focusing on Noah and his family, when we know we're focusing on Abraham and his family, or Jacob and his family, and so on, it helps us pay closer attention to what's being said and follow Moses' train of thought, what he wants us to see. So here in Genesis 2-4, that phrase, these are the generations, I think it helps us see two things. One, because the next occurrence of that generation's marker isn't until chapter 5, verse 1, where it introduces Adam and his descendants, it helps us to see that chapter 2, verse 4, where we're starting at here, all the way up to chapter 5 is one unit. So we're meant to read and understand and interpret this together, which we'll do over the next few weeks. So in other words, here, Moses wants us to think about God's creation of man. He wants us to think about what life was like in the Garden of Eden. He wants us to think about what was lost when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and what life was like after. Okay, so two... This, this heading, the generations heading, clues us into the fact that we are shifting focus here. So we're shifting focus from a grand cosmic scale in chapter 1 now to a narrow focused scale in chapter 2. So chapter 1 was about God's creation of the universe. Chapter 2, as the heading implies, is about what came forth from that creation, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1 dealt with the heavens and the earth, a la the first part of verse 4. Chapter 2 is going to deal with the earth and the heavens, the second part of verse 4. Did you catch that, how those flip? The heavens and the earth at the beginning of verse 4, the earth and the heavens at the end of verse 4. So in other words, to put it simply, in chapter 2, we are zooming in. We're considering what creation was like just before and after God created man in his own image. In verses 5 and 6 here, they set the scene. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. This is a picture of emptiness with expectation. So before God sent rain on the land and made Adam to work the ground, certain types of vegetation hadn't sprung up yet. So when there was nothing, verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Moses already told us that God created man in chapter 1. There in verses 26 and 27, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now here in chapter 2, the focus is narrower. God is pictured as the giver of life. He's seen like a potter, and he forms Adam from the dust of the ground, and he breathes into him life. So we're thinking about provision here. Talk about provision. God intimately and carefully brings man, the pinnacle of his creation, into being, into existence. And there's more. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God's not just a potter who shapes and forms the man of dust. He's also a planter. And here he plants a garden. The Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, um, it translates garden as paradisos, which is where we get our English word paradise. That's why you've probably heard the Garden of Eden as referred to as paradise. And Eden, Eden itself means something along the lines of delight or pleasure. So the Garden of Eden, these terms combine to say something intentional about this place. It wasn't a garden like you might think of. It wasn't a well-placed row of veggies in the backyard. This was an intentionally designed paradise of delight, of blessing. And verse 9 tells us more about this garden that God made. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll focus more on those trees in a moment. In a moment but for now, just notice God's abundant provision for this man he makes. He makes to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Adam would have been wanting for nothing. And there were rivers in this garden too. Verses 10 to 14 say, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we know where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are located. They're in a region called Mesopotamia. It's around present-day Iraq. But we don't know where the Payan and Gion rivers were. So what we're not going to do right now, although it may be fun for some of you, boring for others, we're not going to pull out a map and speculate about where we think the garden was. It would be pointless anyway because after God expels Adam and Eve out from it, he blocks entrance to it with a cherubim. Um, so instead of doing that, look at the resources that are mentioned here. These turn out to be really important, verses 11 and 12, two in particular. 
gold, and onyx stone. Gold was used to make a lot of the items that were in the tabernacle. And gold and onyx were both used to make the garments of the priests who served in the tabernacle. If you want to read about that, you can see it in Exodus 25 and 28. But they were also both used in the making of the temple. So David says in 1 Chronicles 29:2, So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Now, remember that the tabernacle wasn't simply a tent. The temple wasn't simply a building. These were structures God commanded his people to build so that he could dwell with them. So in Exodus 25, 8, after telling Moses to receive all these items from the people, including gold and onyx, the Lord says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, why is it important to stop and note this? I think because it helps us see the bigger picture of what is happening here in this garden. The presence of these precious materials and their later use in the tabernacle and the temple tell us what is most important about this place. God dwelled with his people here. And gold and onyx aren't the only evidence that that was the case. In fact, Greg Beal, he's a biblical scholar, he makes the case that the garden was the first temple that the tabernacle and temple were actually based on. So he gives a number of reasons why. We won't get, go into all of them, but there's one author, his name's Tony Reinke. He summarizes some of this on his website. So here are a few. The temple has features of a garden. So listen to 1 Kings 6, 18 and 29. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim, which cherubim, they guard the garden after Adam and Eve are cast out. So around, around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The temple has garden-like features. Also, the tree of life in the garden is comparable with the golden lampstand that's in the tabernacle and temple, which was shaped like a tree. Also, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden is comparable with the Ten Commandments kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Beale points this out. He says, The Ark in the Holy of Holies, which contained the law that led to wisdom, echoes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that also led to wisdom. Both the touching of the ark and the partaking of the tree's fruit resulted in death. And finally, Adam's role in the garden. We'll consider this more in a minute, but his role is reflected in the role of a priest in the tabernacle. So God commands Adam to work and keep the garden and he describes the priest's role similarly. Listen to Numbers 3, 7, and 8. 
They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Adam's role and the priest's role are similar. So again, why stop and point all these similarities out? I think it's easy for us to think about the Garden of Eden and, uh, and view it simply as this, and it is, a paradise of delight. I think it's easy for us to stop and think about all the wonders that would have been there, all the blessings of that place, and miss the most important thing about it. So like the tabernacle and temple, the garden is where God dwelt with man. What's the real treasure of Eden? God is. And Adam enjoyed fellowship and communion with God there. In the garden, Adam also had rest. Look at verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. That phrase, put him, could be literally translated, caused to rest. One commentator points this out, and he makes a connection with Deuteronomy 12.10, where God promises to give Israel rest and safety from their enemies in the promised land across the Jordan River. So if that's the case, and I think there's reason to believe that it is, in Genesis 2.15, what's being communicated is that the Lord causes Adam to rest in the garden. The Lord makes Adam to dwell in the safety of his presence. Okay, so step back and see how God so abundantly provides for his people in this place. God gives Adam life. God gives Adam every tree that, it is, that is delightful to the eyes and good for food. God gives Adam safety and rest. And God gives Adam, and this is most important, himself. Communion with God Almighty. Put that together with Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, God sovereignly creates the universe and everything in it. Now in chapter 2, God intimately and masterfully provides for, cares for, and dwells with man. Have you noticed that there's a name for God that occurs over and over in the verses that we've read? The Lord God, Lord in all caps, followed by God. It first shows up in verse 4, and by the end of chapter 3, it's used a total of 20 times. Now, that's significant because in the entire rest of the Old Testament, the, the title, Lord God, only occurs an additional 20 times. So in other words, of the 40 total occurrences of Lord God, 20 of them, 50%, are right here in Genesis 2 and 3. So we need to stop and figure out what this means. So the term LORD in all caps is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal divine name. 
He shared it with his chosen people, first with Moses in Exodus 3, when he tells Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. The Jews believed that Yahweh was too holy to be said out loud, so they would instead substitute Adonai, which means Lord. And that's why when the word Yahweh occurs in Hebrew, that's why in our English Bibles we see it as Lord in all caps. It reflects that tradition of not reading it out loud. And the Hebrew term that follows it, that's translated God in these verses, is Elohim. It refers to God as a sovereign creator of all that exists. So can you put those together and see the connection with chapter 1 and chapter 2 and what's being communicated? These two terms, Yahweh, Elohim, combine to communicate that God is not only the sovereign, omnipotent creator of everything that exists, but he's also the personal, knowable God of his chosen people. Can you see why that would have been encouraging to the original audience of this book? Remember that Moses likely wrote Genesis after the, Israel's, after the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and before they entered the promised land of Canaan. So facing an unknown future in a new land with real enemies and real threats on the horizon, they would have been reminded here that their God, Yahweh Elohim, who brought them out of Egypt, was leading them into a new better land. They would have been reminded that Yahweh Elohim, this God who provided a lavish, abundant, secure land for Adam and Eden, is promising to do the same for them, and he can be trusted. They would have been reminded that what they are experiencing, what they are entering into in the promised land, what God is promising them has already been seen. God gave this to Adam and Eden. God is promising to bring them into this promised land of safety and rest again in Canaan. So what would this have done for the people who read this in between the exodus and entrance into the land? It would have given them hope. It would have caused them to trust their God who always delivers on his promises, to trust their God who has given them his divine personal name, to trust their God who created the universe. So this text gives hope. We live in a world that is broken by sin. We see and feel the effects of sin and its devastation on a daily basis. So maybe you're here this morning and it's the weight of your own sin that you feel. Maybe you're trusting in Jesus, but at times you buy into the lie that God can't be pleased with you, that yes, he loves sinners, but that just can't be true for you. Maybe it's a fight to trust the Lord and believe what he says is true. Or maybe you're here this morning and it is the weight of the sin of others that you feel. Maybe you've watched friends 
crash and burn. Maybe you have been personally, egregiously sinned against by another. Or maybe you're here and you just look at the sad state of our country and our world and rightly lament, lament that so much has gone wrong. Eden is a sweet reminder that it won't always be so. You won't always struggle with sin. You won't always be sinned against. You won't always witness the sins of others and the ramifications that follow. A day is coming when all will be made new. We're going back to Eden, you know. The new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, what it describes, that's a new and better Eden. There's going to be a tree there. There will be a river there. There will be a city and safety there. There will be no darkness, no sin, no tears, no pain, and best of all, God's going to be there. God will dwell with us, and we will be his people forever and ever and ever. That is something to look forward to, and Genesis 2 helps us do it. But guess what? There is a bright future ahead of us that we aren't experiencing yet. But because of Jesus, if we are trusting in him, we get to experience that blessing in part right now. When Jesus died for sinners and when he got up from that grave, he put the results of the curse, which Pastor Chris is going to cover in a couple of weeks, he put those results in reverse. He conquered sin and death. And if we're trusting in him, we have been spiritually raised from the dead. We have the God-given ability to fight our own sin. We have safety and security, rest in Jesus. We have reconciliation with the God of the universe who promises to meet our every need. We know God as Yahweh, our God, our Father, who will come through for us every time without fail. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, there is so much to rejoice and take hope in in Genesis 2. If you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, if you aren't trusting in Jesus to forgive you for your sins, let me encourage you to make today the day of salvation. This is our God. God is a rich giver. We have all sinned against God and fallen short, but God is rich in grace and mercy, and he sent Jesus to deal with our sin, to pay the penalty we owed. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus here this morning, there's really good news. Jesus died for sinners and rose from the grave. And that means if you turn away from your sin and trust Jesus to save you right now, this morning, on this very spot, Jesus will give you new life. Jesus will save you and make you his. The hope that's present in Genesis 2, the hope that's present at the end of Revelation in 21 and 22, the hope that is present in the cross and resurrection will be yours. So there's celebration to be done now. 
So let's remember Eden. Let's remind ourselves of what our God is like and what he promises for his people. But let's also work. So as we wait, we have work to do. That brings us to point two, calling. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word work here denotes labor, service. So in Genesis 3, 23, after Adam sins against God in the Garden of Eden, God sends him to work the ground from which he was taken. Proverbs 12, 11, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. We're so prone to view work as a curse. Do you ever feel like that? It's something that we have to grit and bear in order to relax and be able to do what we really want. Work is an obstacle to overcome. That's not the view of Genesis 2. God instituted work before sin ever entered the world. That means that work isn't the problem. Sin is. Sin did not create work. Sin made work hard. Work is actually a gift from the Lord. So that has huge implications for how we should think about work now. At the very least, it means that we should see work as a blessing from God. As Paul says in Colossians 3.23, that we should work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It means that given the difficult nature of work now, we should pray to the Lord and ask Him to give us strength and empower us for the work He's called us to. It means that we should seek to do our jobs well, not merely do our jobs, but do our jobs with excellence and bring order to chaos, light to darkness, restoration to brokenness. And as we do so, we winsomely reflect our God who himself perfectly labors, creates, orders, and restores. I love the vision of work that's presented in the song Day by Day. It's um, produced by a group called the Porter's Gate Worship Project. It's on an album called Work Songs. Um, I, I could send you a link to it if you'd like later. Just let me know. It's a, it's a great album. But this song Day by Day, just listen to their perspective on work. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing this for you. I'm going to read the lyrics. All right, so it says... Server, you remind us of our Savior's bowl and towel. Teacher, you are raising up a child to be kind. Lawyer, give us hope that justice one day will surround us. Farmer, you are working for a table full of bounty. Painter, with each color you are teaching us to see. Nurse, yours are the healing hands that touch the poor and broken. Carpenter, you frame a house for those who need protection. Laborer, you lift a heavy burden for the weak. Leaders, 
build a city that all children may rejoice in. And the refrain is, may God's kingdom come on earth his will be done. Lord, be close to us. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, please put your hand on us day by day. The song is better than that, but I hope you get the idea. When we work like that, when we work heartily and serve in the strength that the Lord supplies, we're showing that we trust God's design and that we want to please Him. We are properly imaging God who created the universe and ordered the chaos. We are signaling that a new world's coming, a world where work will exist and where it will be joyful without difficulty. Now, when we don't work like that, when we are lazy, when we procrastinate, when we neglect our duties, when we do everything we can to get, to get to the point where we no longer have to work, we are not fulfilling our design as creatures, as human beings made in God's image. Now, that doesn't mean that rest is bad. Sometimes rest is the most holy thing that you can do. But what it does mean is that perpetual rest, a life without responsibility, with nothing to do, it runs against the grain of how we were designed. So when you do that thousandth load of laundry, when the fall comes and you go to rake up your leaves and those little balls, the spiky balls that fall from those gum trees that are all over my yard, when you go to rake those things up, when you change that diaper, when you work out that math equation or solve that problem, when you help that patient, when you write that contract, when you have that meeting, when you care for somebody in need, when you, believe it or not, send that email, you are fulfilling your calling as a human made in the image of God. You are telling the world that you are working and waiting for a new home that is surely coming one day. So let's work, and let's do our work well, and let's work in the Lord's strength. Let's also keep. So look at verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So earlier, when talking about how the garden is reflected in the temple and tabernacle, I read from Numbers 3, 7, and 8. In those verses, the words translated work and keep both occur to unpack the priest's role in the tabernacle as one as one of service and protection. So it says again, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So the Levites were to work at the temple and protect it. Similarly, Adam was put in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep or protect it. Now, we'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but Adam dropped the ball here. When Satan slithers into the garden and tempts Eve to eat from the fruit of the forbidden tree, when Eve offers Adam some of that fruit, Adam should have rose up as protector. 
He should have stopped he and his wife from sinning. He should have done everything he could to expel the snake from that place. But he didn't. I think what occurs there, what we see follow in Genesis 3, helps provide us with a framework to understand how we serve as protectors now. So through faith in Jesus, we have been made a kingdom. We are priests to our God. It's Revelation 1.6. As such, as priests now, we all have a protective role. I think it fleshes fleshes itself out in at least two ways. So one, we need to keep watch over ourselves. We need to protect our own hearts. So listen to a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. We need to be diligent to keep our hearts, to keep watch over our own souls. What does it look like? It's the things that we know to do. We need to draw near to God in his word and in prayer, with full confidence and assurance based on what Jesus has already done for us. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to run away from sin and run to Jesus. We need to live every single day in patterns of repentance and faith, turning away from sin, trusting Jesus, away from sin, trusting Jesus, over and over and over. We also need to guard each other. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, is a community project. We need to keep watch over our own souls, but we need to help one another in this effort. That's why we emphasize community groups so much here. These are contexts where we come together as men and women of the faith, as men and women of this church, and help one another keep our eyes on Jesus so that we may not fall into sin. That's the calling that God gives to Adam here in the garden, to work and to keep, to serve and to protect. He also gives him, and this is our third point, a command. This is verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, the tree of life, what was it? Well, Adam wasn't created immortal. As Adam ate from this tree, as he ate this fruit, God gave him continued life. So that's why after Adam and Eve sin against God, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and away from the tree. So Genesis 3, to 24, the, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That was actually a gift from God. If Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God allowed them to eat from the, from the tree of life and live forever, think of what kind of punishment that would be to continually live in that state. It's a gracious thing for God to judge them for their sin. Remember, re redemption is coming. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there are a lot of ideas about what the fruit of this tree gave the person who ate it. I think uh, the most compelling option is divine wisdom. So listen to one commentator. He puts it this way. He says, it has long been recognized that the features of the garden story bear strong resemblance to wisdom literature and themes. The wisdom tradition declares that wisdom is possessed by God and is humanity's proper goal of attainment. Proverbs indicates, however, that it must be achieved through the fear of the Lord and not through grasping it independently. Moreover, there is knowledge that God possesses that man should not seek apart from revelation. To obtain this knowledge is to act with moral autonomy. So why could Adam and Eve not eat from this tree in the garden? God was teaching them to trust him. God was teaching them that true wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7. God was doing this for their good, causing them to rely on him, the giver of life and all good gifts. This wasn't some kind of cosmic setup. John Calvin notes this, and he says, quote, we now understand what is meant by abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, namely, that Adam might not, in attempting one thing or another, rely upon his own prudence, but that cleaving to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. Eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would signify a lack of trust in God. It'd be a vote of no confidence in Yahweh Elohim. It would be turning away from God to an idol, and that is why the punishment is so severe. Disobeying God, refusing to trust in Him, delighting in idols warrants death. Mary Shelley, she actually gets at this in Frankenstein, believe it or not. Um, again, this is from Mike Cosper. He quotes this in that book, The um, Stories We Tell. So Mary Shelley says this, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. God doesn't want that for his people. God is our creator and covenant God. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to cling to him. He wants us to follow his good and wise commands. That is the real pathway to true joy and true contentment and true blessing, trusting and obeying God. Just look at what he offers Adam in verse 16. When he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, literally translated, did you know that actually says, you may eat, eat of every tree of the garden. That signifies abundant blessing. 
every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food, God tells the man he created, eat, eat. The Lord wants to give his people freedom and blessing and abundance, but straying from God has severe consequences. So the text, when it says that in the day you eat, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die, surely die there, also likewise translates to die, die. So Genesis 2, 14 to 17, it presents us with an invitation, an invitation to trust the Lord. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is our God. He generously gives life, provision, rest, security. He generously gives himself to us. He gives us a calling to work or labor and keep, protect. And he commands us to follow his good, life-giving commands and run away from sin. God gives and gives and gives and gives for his glory and for our eternal good. In Genesis 2, he gives Adam a paradise where he dwells with him and where Adam enjoys the security and rest of fellowship with God. Now, for us who are trusting Jesus, he gives us a paradise in Christ. We have forgiveness of sin. We have blessing and peace and contentment. We have reconciliation with God. And one day, God will usher us into a city, a paradise, where we will dwell with him forever and ever in a land unstained by sin and its consequences. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are thankful for you. You are so good and kind and merciful. Father, thank you for Genesis 2 and the sweet reminder of who you are and how you provide for your people. Lord, we read this passage and we are also reminded of what was lost. And so, Lord, we mourn uh, the, the effects of sin that we see in our world now. We lament but Father, we wait with expectation because in Christ we enjoy your blessing now and we know, we are confident, we have a sure hope that one day Jesus is going to come back and put everything to rights and dwell with us forever. So Lord, please help us to press into Genesis 2 uh, as we go from here this week. Help us to rejoice in our God. Lord, help us to reflect you in the way that we live and work. Lord, help us to... Uh, trust and obey you. Lord, help us to tell others of you and your goodness. We need you. Uh, and Lord, we pray that your hand would be on us for your glory and for our good and for Christ's sake. In his name, amen.